curiously specific. Curiously specific. As if to echo his thoughts, the tortured rubber screamed as he left the South Circular Road into the A20 and took the roundabout at 40. Okay, I can't take the roundabout at 40 because there's lots of cars here. We're going past the Tesco Express, also not mentioned. 20. And the <laughs> all right. Curiously specific. We're in a lay-by on the B2173 between Sidcup and Swanley. Extraordinary unglamorous location. It is quite astonishingly unglamorous and strangely in keeping with the book that is to the subject of today's book. Uh, because I'm contending, Tim, yes. that this wasn't always the B2173. <laughs> no, no. There was a time when this was the famed... A20. A20. A20 Road out of London. And we're going to talk about a book that centres around a number of specific dates and locations strung out along the A20. And you can, that, that is genuine traffic noise you can hear, listeners. You know, we, we, because today we're going we're, to talk about Moonraker. Moonraker. Moonraker by Ian Fleming. I'm starting a Bond up, novel. I'm starting that, up the engines, Tim, and I'm putting this out onto the V2. Bond. 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 James Bond. Well, curiously, Moonraker is the only Bond novel that is set entirely in Britain, in yes. England. In, and, uh, entirely in London and Kent, in fact. Yes. And there I was thinking I was going to read a book about a space station yep. and lasers and world domination. Because yep. I've seen the film. I've seen the film. But no! No, no. <laughs> no, this book is essentially about driving. It's about driving. This novel was apparently Fleming examining Englishness. Oh, really? Yes. But I think it's really a big old moan yep. about his commute between his house in Kent yes. and his workplace in London. So he had a house at St Margaret's at Cliff, which we're going to talk about later on, uh, and he drove backwards and forwards quite often between there. But he wrote the book in Jamaica, right? Yes. Fondly remembering all his drives. His drives. <laughs> Curiously specific. Looking for shells? No, I'm just looking. What's strikingly odd about this book is that it involves essentially three car journeys <laughs> and a game of bridge game of bridge it could talk it does talk about rockets and soviet communism and the re-emergence of nazism and the threat from within yeah but it also just talks about traffic and the weather so i suppose it is quite english in that way there's now somebody doing a three-point turn on the a205 which is uh, <laughs> would have driven fleming absolutely spare so it starts with a drive down to the rocket base yes in kingsdown yes which is in, uh, Ken- in bond Kent, taking his over. bentley down there uh, then there's a there's a drive back to London, following Drax. Following Drax, who's kidnapped the Bond girl. Well, he kidnaps her halfway, isn't he? Because she's got his. Uh, oh yes, that's figures right. out there. She stops to powder, powder her nose in Maidstone. Powder her nose in Maidstone at the Thomas Wyatt. And then there's another chase all the way back down from time. London to Kent, which is really actually rather great. It's a car really, chase description. It's a really good car chase, isn't it? it yeah, really is. But it is curiously specific. Um, it wasn't going to be called Moonraker initially, this book. Oh, was it not? No. Its working title was Mondays Are Hell. Specific. 
curiously specific. Given that most of the action of this takes place in cars, yeah. I'm very much surprised to find in the research to this that Fleming originally thought of this story as a screenplay, not as a novel. Oh dear. Apparently in 1953, Fleming met Alexander Corder, the film producer, oh. because he'd already tried to hawk around Live and Let Die as a film film script, the second novel. So he hadn't sold the rights to the bro to Broccoli and Salt? No, no, point. not at this time, no, no. Uh, and he was firmly told by Corder that Live and Let Die would never make a decent film. So wrong. I haven't read Live and Let Die, I don't think. No, but the film's great. The film's amazing. The yeah. film's my, film's my favourite. <laughs> it's one of my favourites too. So he said, said that, oh well, don't worry, you'll be very excited by my next book, which is Moonraker, <laughs> because uh, it was an expansion of an idea from a screenplay. And he said, writing to him, he said that it has some wonderful settings for a film. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing because I know what's coming. Right? <laughs> you look pale, Mr. Bond. I hope I didn't frighten you. Well, you see, I've always been a nervous passenger. Some men just don't like to be driven. No, some men just don't like to be taken for a ride. So this is Swanley. Yes, well, the Swanley Junction isn't there anymore because it's been replaced by a gigantic supermarket. <laughs> Ian Fleming would have been spitting feathers at this stage. You're sounding a bit like Hugo Drax. They've built He's... a supermarket in the middle of the road. <laughs> Look at it. They really have. That is so 7 District Council. That really is. They really have smacked it right in the middle there. So now we're back on the... Oh, now it's uh, the lovely straight road now again. Now we're back on the lovely straight road. But, I, I mean, in the middle of the road, Tim. <laughs> There's a very good book in the book where... Drax is driving through Maidstone and getting yes, more yes. and more frustrated about traffic lights and zebra crossing. Which you can't do anymore because it's all pedestrianised. <laughs> so they've done the same thing there. They've got a shopping centre in the middle of the road. It describes him as being a rather intemperate driver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, you're, you're, you're taking on that role rather well. Absolutely. I have to say. As well. He was a brilliant driver but a vindictive and impatient one. Up who was always anxious for any car that held him up to be given something to remember. Yep. As the lights went green, he gave a blast on his triple horns, pulled out to the right at the intersection, accelerated brutally and got by, shaking his head angrily at the driver of the saloon as he passed him. They're looking for a golden car. A man and a woman. And a cello. It's very nerdy about cars. It is very nerdy about cars. So he has that whole exchange, that whole section about the racing cars of the 1930s. Oh. He gets very excited about Drax's uh, Mercedes and goes in some reverie, nerdy reverie. Yeah. It was a Type 300S, the sports model, with a disappearing hood. One of only half a dozen in England, he reflected. Left-hand drive. Left-hand drive. Oh. And then he remembers he'd seen a few of them over there. <laughs> one had hissed by on the him. continent. Yes. One had hissed by him on the Munich Autobahn the year before when he was doing a solid 90 in the Bentley. So he's been, he's remembered from a year ago being overtaken being, by a German. Being overtaken and, and holding a slight grudge. Yeah. <laughs> and then then there's a whole page on uh, on the Mercedes, the history of Mercedes car racing yeah. from from 1911 onwards, yeah. in fine detail. Yeah. 
curiously specific. He watched affectionately as the Alpha wagged its tail in the S-Bend abreast of Leeds Castle. We're going round now, I believe. This is it. And then howled off on the long, wide road towards the distant Charing Fork. There was a mile of clear road ahead, it says here. Yeah. Straight as a die. One could almost feel the boy's feet stamping the pedal still further into the floorboards. At a boy. So he's ahead. The Alpha's ahead. This is still a windy road, though. No, we're not at the straight bit yet. Right. That Honda Civic might have to stand in for the Alfa Romeo. So, yes. Harriet somewhere at. So it's called Attaboy 2, the Alfa Romeo that overtakes him. He's going to meet a sticky end. He is. Any minutes. That's it. So under the railway. The long, wide road. Imagine this Honda Civic is a red Alfa Romeo. It's got to be zooming away from us. It must be doing 105, reflected Bond. These, the speeds in this section seem all seem a bit improbable. <laughs> First of all, the age of the cars. The cars yeah. go that fast in the 1950s? Good question. Good question. Good technical point. And, uh, and the, also, the road would not have been... Right, this is good. You can open her up now. OK, I've got up to 60. Right. Drax let out a harsh obscenity. Teach the swine a lesson, he said, setting his shoulders and gripping the wheel tightly in the great leather gauntlets. So the Where Alpha, are your leather gauntlets? The Alfa Romeo, I bought, I, yeah, I left them at home. The Alfa Romeo has passed Drax at this point. No, he's passed Bond, he's gone zooming up the straight road, yeah. and then he's coming upon Drax, and Drax will not be overtaken. Okay. So instead, what he does is he basically inches the wheel of the Mercedes to the right. And at the horrible crash of metal, whipped it back again to correct the slew of his tail. And Krebs screams out, Bravo, bravo! Double somersaults! Jump the hedge upside down! I think he's burning already! There are flames! (laughs) That will give our friend Mr. Bond something to think about! (laughs) Snarled Drax. Okay, well, we're, we're opening her up now. There we go. The Honda Civic's picked up speed, we're up to so 70. Basically, it must be around here that that nudge takes place. Road, yeah. We're four miles from Charing. Yeah, this looks right, round here. No, here we are, this is a really long straight bit. So it's going to be the end of this straight bit. We're going to see an Alfa Romeo nudged. It's going to be nudged into the hedge, upside down. As he flashed by, noting the horrible graffiti of the black skid marks across the tarmac, his mind recorded one final macabre touch. Somehow undamaged in the Holocaust, the windhorn was still making contact and its ululations were going up to the sky, stridently clearing imaginary roads for the passage of Attaboy 2. Pom, him, pom, ham, pom, him. A murder had taken place. Just about here. I think it would have nudged him here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's looking good. Turning to Warren Street. After dusk. And meanwhile, how do you kill five hours in Rio if you don't snap So that Charing Fork yep. is basically the junction between the A252 and the A20. Yeah. Now, according to the Sabre Wiki, which I've become addicted to. Excellent. Which is 
the goat. It's called the Roder's Digest. The Roder's Digest. Yeah, I love these guys already. Yeah, me too. I'm assuming they are guys. So it says here it begins at around about the Charing Western Bypass. But what it says here, because we've talked about the fact that in this section where Bond is driven off the road by the paper lorry, the paper yeah. rolling off the back of the lorry. Yeah. Presumably there wouldn't have been two lanes there. It would have been just no. a single lane. No. But now, they here it describes it as saying that um, it is complete with an S3 suicide lane. <laughs> so that's the overtaking lane going it's up It's basically the north down to Scarpen Steepers, the middle lane changes to a crawler lane and the road becomes more winding. Now, this suggests to me that there was a... Obviously, something had happened about slow lorry traffic on that road. Oh, paper for lorries. The, for them to put in a suicide lane. Maybe slow paper lorries. <laughs> Very good. So so the road has changed as a result of slow-moving traffic. Somebody read Moonraker and thought it was a documentary. <laughs> it is a documentary <laughs> about roads, as we're just saying. So we do know that Fleming basically had a house down in Dover... Not yeah. far from where we think the Moonraker rocket site was, gone. right? And we do know that he weekended there, so that he was basically doing a Friday afternoon drive down yes. and a Monday morning drive back yes. to London. Which is why this book was entitled Monday's a Hell, I imagine. The traffic would have been awful. It would have been awful. But he had his... So what, his what knowledge I love about it is that the whole setup of the book is the fact that Bond doesn't take the A20... No, he knows about the 252. His own, his own route. That's right. Avoids the, the hellish traffic at Ashford. Yes, terrible congestion. There's a lot of talk about congestion. Now, I just want to put it to you, of course, that the A20, the, the congestion in Ashford was actually a, a, such a big problem in the 1950s that it was mentioned in the Houses of Parliament several times. Really? As a problem, yeah. Basically, they were talking about having an Ashford bypass in the 1930s. Wow. But, but the World War II interrupted any work on that. Right. And, um, and then it, it didn't resume. And a number of uh, local people in the Kent area were so annoyed by this that they, there were questions were answered in the House from the local MPs. I wonder who would have written to their local MP about congestion in Ashford. I think there might have been a Fleming Eye Esquire <laughs> somewhere in that pile. I think so. Yeah. And curiously, do you know what? Work started on actually getting it done in 1954 when this book was being written. So. And it was finished in 1955. So this is a very hot topic. Yeah, but. It, A20 bypasses was a big topic. But don't you, can you, is there a picture of Fleming sitting there going, damn it, they've built the bloody road? <laughs> The whole stuff about the Ashford Bypass is now nonsense because they and then, built the damn thing. Well, and then actually they would have been building the M20 about that time yeah, as yeah, well. Because yeah. that was officially open. The first section of that was in 1960. Right. So what we're talking about here is a novel that is talking about the last sort of vestiges of old A-road driving yep. before yep. bypasses and motorways became the normal thing. Well, given the amount of death that seems to be on the A20 in this book, it's not surprising, really. And I'm wondering whether he's mourning the pass, passing of a golden age of driving or whether he's welcoming the great new technologies that are going to make driving a little bit faster. Well, by his this, commute a bit painless. Well, by this time he'd sold up his house in St Margaret's. Ah. 
Because he couldn't stand the driving. Presumably because he couldn't stand the driving, and he also he'd gone to Jamaica, hadn't he? Ah, of his own accord. Specific. Curiously specific. The way Drax drives is almost like an advert for road control. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, Bond doesn't really complain about the roads and the congestion. Well, but he's just, just driving... He just bangs on it endlessly about his shortcuts. <laughs> but he does drive at 100 miles an hour everywhere. He's been a 1930, <laughs> yeah, so with, the, with no windshields. <laughs> I mean, imagine what that must have felt like. And no lights, <laughs> for, two, for two hours. He hasn't got his lights on. For two hours. For two hours. <laughs> so presumably there's no street lighting or anything on these roads. No. Outside the town. No. So he's driving in the dark, following yeah. a car up ahead with the yeah. windshield down, at over 100 miles an hour. Very exciting. Now that is... So we said that this book was originally a film screenplay yes. centred around uh, the car chases and the, yes. and the, and the rocket base. The, the card playing came later. Yeah. Now, I started thinking that that's going to be quite a boring film. Of just driving down the A20. When, yeah, but now when you start thinking about the actual car chase. Yeah, now, and I'm thinking, so when was the first great car chase movie? And if you look up on film sites, every, all the major movie buffs cite Bullet, 1968, with Steve McQueen. Right. As the, as the first great car chase movie. Yeah. This screenplay of his, he wrote this in the early 50s. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking he may have been a bit ahead of his time. Is that something to do with um, with cameras, though, and that, you know, filming technology? I think that's probably right. If we start, if we think about Bullet, and then we get to things like Vanishing Point yeah. and uh, The Italian Job, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're all 68 to 71. And they're all feats of uh, you know, production, aren't they? Yes. They're amazing... So I would think there's the cameras have shrunk enough that you can the director can sit in a car with the camera and zoom around the place. But also presumably the editing techniques and yeah. the, the, the pacing. And yeah. But again, I'd say if if that was in Fleming's head, as that would make a great movie in 1954, he's really ahead of his time. What do you think you're doing? Keeping the British end up, sir. So we're closing in on the Charing Fork. Coming up the Charing Fork. Suddenly everyone slows down to 40. That's not what Drax is doing. No. Drax took the left-hand fork at Charing and hissed up the long hill. Okay. Hissed. His car hisses a lot. Mercedes hiss. German cars hiss, don't they? Yep. It's uh, mildly racist. Ahead, in the giant beam of his headlights, one of Bowwater's huge eight-wheeled AEC diesel carriers was just grinding into the first bend of the hairpin. Okay, well, we're coming up to... Labouring uh, under the 14 tonnes of newsprint. It was I'm, taking on a night run to I'm one of the... suicide ed- lane. Yes, well, this wouldn't have been here, of course. No, it would have been... He would have had to overtake, but we've got this um, S2 lane here. S2 lane. Which uh, is referred to as the suicide. I've overtaken the, chi- the Fiat Cinquecento, almost an Alfa Romeo. And this is about, this is the moment that uh, Krebs is meant to get your shoes and socks off and get on the bonnet. Okay. So here comes the bend. Here comes the bend here. 
Yes, the first S-bend here. Tricky S-bend at the top of the hill. Here, this is it. The tricky S-bend at the top of the hill. I'm going to slow down behind this lorry. Take your shoes and socks off and climb out onto the bonnet. Okay, we're going up the S-bend now. So this is where he jumps out. Yeah. That goes alongside it. He took the bend at 80. I'm doing barely 50. <laughs> this is where he would have cut it here. Yeah. And he would have rolled back down, yep. down there. Okay. Run and he would have hit bond. What we say is, it hit bond on the second bend. Down. Yeah. Because they go back. That's exactly what they do. They pull over like this. Pull over. Yeah. And, um, and go back to check. So we go back and check? That, uh, that, that the damage has been done. A series of huge thuds as the left-hand rolls poured off the back of the lorry. Right, so I'm driving back down the hill now. Yeah, so you decide like, to uh, go back. Would have done. A master stroke, mein Kapitan! Yeah, they passed the lorry at the top of the hill. It was stopped and there was no sign of the driver, so just here. Yeah. And then they were slowing up. There were lights on in the two or three houses, those houses there. Yeah. And then they went on to a left, a telegraph pole, then drunkenly snapped in the middle. Then at the next bend was the beginning of a great confusion of paper. And the Bentley had nearly broken through the railings that fenced off at the right, off right. the right of the bend. Oh, the, oh right. They fenced okay. off the right of the bend from a steep up. bank. Yeah, so it's this. That and fencing there. there. The that fencing bank. there. It's smashed into that fencing. That's yeah. it. Excellent. So, ah, look here, yeah, look, this yeah, fencing yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. So he's down there. Yeah. No, he, that is completely right. That is curiously specific. Very specific. He, Drax pulled up and he and Krebs got out and stood quietly listening. With their guns out, they walked cautiously over to the remains of the Bentley, their feet crunching the broken glass on the road. Deep furrows had been cut across the grass verge and there was a strong smell of petrol and burnt rubber in the air. The, this is quite good. Yeah. The hot metal of the car ticked and crackled softly and steam was still fountaining from the shattered radiator. He does write about cars quite well, actually, he does, doesn't he? Does, he? he does. Bond was lying face downwards at the bottom of the bank, 20 feet away from the car. How did he survive that? He must be indestructible. So this is what? That's it. That's White Cliffs. This one here? So this is in Fleming's house? Yeah. It's not very glamorous. It's not very glamorous at I all. I suppose maybe in the 50s it was. It looks a bit cruddy. It's a bit abandoned. There's, there's books and stuff in that one. This all looks like it's been done up. Right. And 
so the, the beach the Bond beach is just around the corner there's a huge cliff fall here a few years ago that was in the paper oh you can see it the chalk yeah yeah so we're saying the moon breaker rocket base, base, is, base is there just up there so he comes out of his front door he's on the beach he looks up to the left and thinks there shouldn't be a golf course there there should be a rocket base well the golf course is a bit further down right I don't think it's a golf course there okay but we should uh, do you want to hear some more about the, the house you bet so we're at St Margaret's Bay St Margaret's Bay rather which is uh, where all the uh, channel swimmers sit out from there's a bloke out there at the moment yeah, with yeah. a with an orange cap on that says Dover yeah so this became quite the place after the war so Peter Ustinov was stationed here oh god uh, during the Second World War, and he bought a house on the cliffs. I think it's that one up there, right up on the cliffs. I'd rather be up on the cliffs than down here. What, do you know who owns it now? No, Miriam Margolis. Oh, wow. Um, and these houses here, there's, there's four cottages in a row, right on the beach at the other end of the... And they were... Um, two of them were owned by Noel Coward, so he bought two of them after the war. Henry Royce lived here as well. The, uh, Who's Henry the, Royce? Of Rolls-Royce. Oh, gosh, OK, of course. Um, and uh, the thing I wanted to tell you about the houses. So, yeah, Noel Cow bought the house at St. Mark's Bay in 1945. His previous house, Goldenhurst. There's a theme. Kent, Goldenhurst. There's a Hurst. I know. There's a theme emerging Goldenhurst here. Goldenhurst in Kent was requisitioned by the army. So he decided to spend his time here. Um, and uh, he, uh, so he, he, he rent the house here. The thing about it is there were four houses here and Coward wanted to, put, Coward wanted to buy all of them after the war. Or four of them, um, but there was a housing shortage in the southeast, so he wasn't he wasn't allowed to buy more than one. Okay. So he bought this one. But to you like this to ensure Coward's privacy, two of the other houses were bought by Eric Ambler and Cole Leslie <laughs> to preserve his privacy, and the third by his mother. <laughs> right. That's hilarious. Despite investigation by Fleet Street and a suspicious Ministry of Works, no breach of the law was discovered. So anyway, so he was here for a long time. Um, there was an exception cold winter in 1947. He spent £2,000 pinning back the chalk cliffs behind the house here. Um, he kept 10 chickens behind it. Uh, finished the house off in 1945, so he had it built. It was built for him. Um, but it looks very 1930s, not 1940s. His neighbour Gladys Calthrop was a regular visitor, while actors Graham Payne and Joseph Cotton regularly drove down from London for weekends. Wow. Yeah, I know. The third man. Uh, Figures such as Gertrude Lawrence, Daphne du Maurier, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn used to come down and spend the weekend here. It's so cruddy here! During her stays, Catherine Hepburn famously went for regular swims in the sea outside. Catherine Hepburn swimming in the sea. Amazingly. Weekends were spent playing canasta or scrabble, listening to classical music and doing the Times crossword. Fleming purchased Whitecliffs from Noel Coward in 1951 and owned it until 1957. Right, so okay. right over the period of the book. Publication between, of Moonraker, 1955. Fleming's love affair with Kent predated the purchase of his new home, and he continues to regularly visit his favourite golf course at Sandwich, Royal St George's. Now, this is a nice one. Although some dispute it, there is a popular suggestion that 007 derived from the number of the London to Dover and Deal coach service currently operated by National Express. I don't believe that I for really a moment. Be, I don't really believe it. I like it though. It'd be nice if it's true. I'd like it because it would be like when his when his when his car was in for servicing, he'd have to take the bus to London, and he'd have to say to his missus, "I'm just taking the 007 into London today." 
So yeah, what's fascinating about this whole thing is that you know you look at it, we talk we talk about the book right. So Fleming, light contract bridge, was a member of several clubs, enjoyed a drink, drove down here at the weekend, had a house right on the beach. He sat there going, I need to knock a book together. Literally, it's just like you know, write what you know, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They had a funny idea of what glamour was in the really, 1950s, really did. didn't they? Really did. Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, get get I out of here. I know. I know. I bet they didn't stay in there, though, did they? They probably stayed in one of the hotels. Who knows? With Catherine Hepburn doing a, doing a front crawl up and down the... Doing uh, a gala impression. Yeah, that makes more sense. I've got, I can believe that. Curiously specific. So where are we now? We're sat at the uh, Coast Guard on the Bay, which is the uh, Ship and Neen pub on the front of St Margaret's Bay, looking out on St Margaret's Bay at high tide. With a pint of beer. With a pint of beer, that's mine, you're oh, I, like I can pretty much see the beginning of what would be the Moonraker base up yeah. there. You can, you can see it from so the pub. So we found the base. We found the base. And guess what? Well, it's a golf course. Walmer and Kingsdown Golf, golf Club. Course. So yeah. he moved, he bought the house here in 1951. Yeah, he'd already been a guest. But he'd been a guest of Noel, Noel Coward's weekends. Yeah. He would have seen a military base up there. He would. He would. He would have seen barbed wire and gun emplacements and war damage. And he would have thought, hmm, not bad location. Not bad location. So, so he's got the location. Then he buys the house. And he's got the, the journey and the roads. Yeah. It's all, it's all com- coming together. It's all coming together. So he comes up with this film idea. He comes up with this film idea. Which would have been, that would have been quite filmic as well, wouldn't it? Well, As, as we were saying, it's, it's probably the, the he's thinking this is, you know, this is like Hollywood or something. He probably yeah. thinks this is incredibly glamorous here because the rest yeah, of England yeah, yeah, is yeah. so shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's yeah. thinking everyone's going to love a film about this yeah, yeah. because it's so it's sexy. Glitzy. It's glitzy. <laughs> Mayfair Clubs and St Margaret's Bay. Yeah. Now, uh, dates. Okay. So it was written in... Written in 19... Published in 1955. Written in 1954. Written in 1954. Yeah. In Jamaica. That's right. Um, and we know that it meant. But he was thinking about it since the end of the war, wasn't he? Doesn't he say he'd been yeah. toying with the idea of a film script since the end of well, the war? Well, he's very, very specific about the fact that this is going on in May. Yes. So it all goes, happens over a week in May. Oh, yes. Yeah. So it starts, it starts on a Monday. Yep. Mondays are hell. Talks about late May. Yeah. He even talks about sort of seasonal foods of yeah, asparagus. Yeah, yeah. And bluebells. And bluebells. And then it's Monday, Tuesday. It's basically a week's action, isn't it? Yeah. And the, and the rocket's going to go off on Friday at midnight. Yeah. Countdown. So he is, in a way, quite specific yeah. about dates. But do we know what year it is in May? No, but I think you might have a, cl- have a clue because you've got that face on. Well... I was reading a book by John Griswold okay. called Annotations and Chronologies, in which he's done a rather marvellous thing, where he's, he's, not, he's thought about the dates for the whole of the Bond uh, novels, all of them, and how they relate to each other. He's kind of making the claim that he can date the whole thing from beginning to end. Where did you find this book? <laughs> On the internet. So it's a whole book just about dating Bond novels? Yes. yes. Sounds brilliant. <laughs> it does sound brilliant. But... It's a, he makes a rod for his own back there, yeah, yeah. which is not necessarily a good idea, because what he says is that this has to be 1953, 
And his only major reason for saying that it has to be 53 is because Bond's busy doing Diamonds Are Forever in 1954, <laughs> so he can't be 53. It's a rather circular argument. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I found a, what I think is a somewhat of an anomaly in the narrative that says to me it's far more likely to be 1954. Right. Far more likely. It doesn't refer to dates, though, does he? Well, he does refer to events, though. OK. Because he refers to... Drax, quite a lot actually, and he about who is this guy Drax and what's his history, right? Okay, and talks about it at some length. And he says by 1950 he was a multi-millionaire. Yeah. Then he came back to England and started spending it. He simply threw it about. One of the things he did, of course, was he he supplied money for the Walker Cup team, a hundred thousand pounds for the flood disaster fund, and also. A coronation ball for nurses at the Albert Hall. Oh, okay. The now, coronation was in '53, wasn't it? The coronation was indeed in '53. Yes, it was in on June the second, right. 1953. So it's after 1953. And, it's after. Well, and you and I, you have to say that the the flood disaster is referring to the great flood that yeah. I know about from Norfolk, yeah. and that's 1953 as well. Yeah. Okay, that was in, I think it's the 30th of January, 1st So he sat there in February 12th, February 1954, thinking about the really big news events of the last 12 months, and he's come up with the flood and the coronation. Yeah. And he's, tw- he's, he's nailed Drax to those. Right, so he's nailed, but, that, but, he's, but get this. So then he says that he then came an astonishing letter to the Queen, Your Majesty, may I have the temerity. Okay, so, so he's done that, Your Ma- he's written to the Queen, she's the Queen by then. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She was the, she's dead. the queen before her coronation, though. Ah, now this might be the technical point here. And You're then the it says there were months of delay and everybody got quite impatient. Months of delay. And then M says, Yes, I remember the headline, Peace in Our Time, this time, a year ago. So maybe it's set in May 1955. Don't you think he's just balls that up? <laughs> Don't you think the coronation thing's just he's just made he's just he's just done a stupid thing there. I think uh, that reference has not helped him. I think in uh, in Fleming's defense he would say to you I never said what year it was set in. <laughs> why are you why are you so exercised by this? <laughs> because it's important. It's important. It is, inter- it is interesting that it's uh, that it doesn't work. Yeah. But here's the rub. If it's 53, let's say it is 53. Yeah. That makes it Tuesday the 26th of May, yeah. 1953. There's no such date, you're going to tell me. No, no, that's fine. And then the rocket is going to be launched on Friday the 29th of May. Yeah. The actual coronation is the 2nd of June, in three days' time. He never mentions it. That is quite weird, isn't it? <laughs> he never mentions it. The whole country would be talking about that. Because obviously it's the first colour TV broadcast, isn't it? And I mean, it's just going to be massive. And the idea there's going yeah, to be happens after the narrative of the book. Yeah, but you'd know it's coming up, wouldn't you? And the whole of the Secret Service would be employed in London. No, I was thinking of something more sinister. Maybe, maybe the. But you could argue that Drax has, Drax has chosen the date because it's three days before the coronation, and then you make something of it in the story, right? It, yes, but it doesn't. But he doesn't. <laughs> it's never mentioned. No. So I'm going back to, therefore, saying I think that this takes place in 1954. And therefore, it would be the 24th of May, 
1954. I do think this is one of those. Is the day that he'd come down? Is the day he turns up here? I do think that's one of those. This, this is one of those occasions where the year isn't that important to him. Maybe. <sighs> How can you say that? Well, no, because there are there are stories where the dates are important to the story. The dates are always interesting. I'm not saying it's yeah. uninteresting. I'm saying. The date isn't important to the story. What, in fact, what you've demonstrated was if it was 1953, the date would be very important to the story. Yeah. It would be like three days and, the it, and it would be the ultimate in story about Englishness. It makes you wonder why he didn't do it. Yeah. It would be a, well, I suppose... Maybe it might, it's considered to be... You know, blowing up yeah, the Queen. Blowing up the Queen a bit... No, yeah, yeah, come d- on yeah. <laughs> um, A bit on the nose, as yeah. they say. Well, have you, have you cr- uh, cross-mapped these dates to the development of the roads? <laughs> When does the Ashford Bypass open? Well, uh, the Ashford Bypass uh, opens in 19... Uh, no, construction resumes in 1954, mm. with planned completion in 56. However, it then stalled the waiting completion of the terminal junction and was eventually opened on the 19th of July, 1957. So 54 was again an interesting year. 54, construction on the bypass. Another reason why you wouldn't take that road would be the terrible roadworks in 54... 53, they wouldn't have started. I don't think Bond takes that road because he just likes having his own road, <laughs> his own shortcut. So I'm going 54. Okay, well played. Good to take 54. Thank you very much. I think we should just, because there's a very good bit right at the end where he gets a new car. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. He yeah. gets a new Because he ruins his car in the crash with the paper lorry. Yeah. And he get, uh, they'd say that the test driver is down there for him to. The 1953 yeah. Mark VI had an open touring body. What's that? I don't know what that is. Mark VI Bentley, are we talking about? Yeah, I think so. The 1953 Mark VI had an open touring body. It was battleship grey, like the old four and a half litre that had gone to its grave in a Maidstone garage. And the dark blue leather upholstery gave a luxurious hiss. Hiss, another hiss. As he climbed awkwardly in beside the test driver. And then where, where does he want to go for a test drive? The test driver, he, he wants to catch a ferry to Calais. He wants to take Gala off to, off to France, yeah, yeah, yeah. although that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he asks him whether he could take it down to the terminal at Calais. And the test driver says, Roger, he said, I'll take her over myself. See you on the pier, sir. And Bond says, fine. Go easy on the A20. <laughs> the Dover Road's a dangerous place these days. <laughs> As we know, it's not a dangerous place. It's not. Not if you drive sensibly and within the speed limit. (laughs) Specific. Curiously specific.